Good morning. Praise God, what a beautiful day. I've heard that when you praise God, or when you pray, that, that um, chemicals are released in your brain that give you clarity of thought, that give you calmness. But when you pray out loud, that, that, that those chemicals are even increased. And so this morning, I really need to praise God a few times to get going here. So I, I want to praise God for this wonderful church family that we have and this beautiful building that we get to come worship every Sabbath in. I want to praise God for uh, Pastor Zach and Leah, and I want to praise God for the, the twins that are growing in Leah. Uh, I'm, I just can't wait to see all the great things that God's going to do. My prayer this morning is that the Holy Spirit will fill this place and that the words that come out of my mouth will be from Him, and that the words that you hear will be from Him. When Pastor Zach asked me to speak today, he mentioned that this was Creation Sabbath on the Adventist calendar. I've got to say that hit me a little bit funny. You see, I was raised Roman Catholic. Um, I went to church every Sunday of my, li- of my li- 18 years living in my parents' home. Uh, we went to church on Sunday because Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. And then once a year we went to church on Easter Sunday um, because Jesus rose from the dead on Easter Sunday. So then I find out that as an Adventist I go to church on Sabbath because Jesus rested from his, the work of creation on Sabbath. And once a year we have a special Sabbath where we specially remember the creation. Oh well, it just hit me funny. So maybe a different way of saying it is some Christians put an emphasis on Jesus rising from the dead and some put an emphasis on Jesus creating us and dying for us. Before I get going too far, I wanted to mention that while I was praying, praying and preparing to speak today, that these things that, that uh, came to my mind and spoke to my heart is what, um, what I'm trying to say is that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. If you can identify with any of the things that I, would, that, that I talk about today, I would like to share the blessings that I received while preparing to speak. Some of my earliest memories relate to being a Roman Catholic. When I was six or seven, I was playing basketball with my brothers in our backyard. That was our main pastime when we were kids. Uh, I tended to put my tongue between my cheek, between my teeth whenever I was concentrating on something. Have you seen people do that? Um, Well, um, I got hit on the head with my tongue between my teeth and it almost cut it all the way off. So a few weeks later was my first communion. Now I don't know if you guys know about first communion in the Catholic Church, but that's probably the biggest thing that happens to you until your wedding day. I mean, some of these Catholic churches, these, these uh, little six and seven year old girls going for their first communion will be wearing a bridal gown with a train and they have the biggest party 
um, afterwards that you've ever seen. So this is a really big deal. Well, I remember being lined up in the center aisle of the church and the priest was up front and, and giving the communion wafers to the kids as they, as they came forward. And back then you didn't touch it. You put out your tongue and he put it onto your tongue. So he's going along and he's seen, you know, 30, 40, seven-year-old tongues just, you know, just pink and brand new and everything else. And I get up there and he just about jumped out of his skin when I pushed my, when I put my tongue out. I had a scar with so many stitches, you, you couldn't believe it. I also remember... Uh, Another special event that I was at the church and all the school kids were lined up uh, waiting for the priest in the confessional. I'm sure as Adventists, or you, you probably know something about this, but the, the priest would go into this center room and on either side there's a door. And, and uh, so when you go in, he turns in his chair and he can open up a little window so that you can talk. You can't really see him and he can't see you. And the box that you're in is completely dark. It's like kneeling down in a tiny little closet. Well, um, so I'd been waiting and, you know, kids had been coming and going and, and, and uh, out the different doors. And uh, finally it's my turn. The little girl comes out of the door and, and she says something to me. And... I couldn't hear what she said. She just kind of mumbled and, 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 you know, I was a boy. She was a girl. We were seven years old. She wasn't going to talk to me. So um, I didn't really hear what she said. I went into the uh, confessional and I kneeled down and I waited for the priest. Now, this is a six or seven-year-old's perspective, but I think I waited 45 minutes. And eventually, finally, what happened was the door I came in opened up and it was that little girl. And she said, well... The priest had to run off and do something else, so confession's over for today. So he never did talk to me, and um, but that was, you know, just a, just a, a Catholic experience I had growing up. My mother went to church nearly every day of my whole life. I mean, every morning, first thing, she would go off to church, and they'd always have a six a.m. or so uh, morning service. I remember uh, one morning she came back and she said that, that there was a special deal, an indulgence, that if anybody that would attend Mass for 30 days straight would be assured a place in heaven. And even at that age, I thought that sounded like a pretty good deal. I mean, how could you go wrong? So I did it. Praise God, I know now that I'm saved by grace and not by what I have done. 1 Corinthians 13.11 When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. So, creation Sabbath. Back to creation. Genesis 1.1 In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. I love those words. It sends chills up my spine every time I hear them. It's not ambiguous. It doesn't leave room for creation happening over by itself over millions of years. It's plain, it's simple, and it's factual.
One of the only times I really felt like I made a real point with my mom about the Roman Catholic versus Adventist debate was that Jesus is the creator. You see, growing up Roman Catholic, I only heard of God the Father as the creator. But if we look at John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, God, God, the Word was God. And you see, Adventists can stop right there because we know that Jesus is the Word. My mother was not convinced yet. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which shineth, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. I thought I had her at that point. But she didn't, she didn't know... She wasn't there yet. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God, even to them who believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It took all the way to John one fourteen, but she admitted it. Jesus was the creator. Another thing I realize is not everyone understands that Jesus is the word. That seems to be something that Adventists know, but apparently not everyone does. That seemed like a good start, though. Jesus is the creator and Jesus is the word. By the way, if you go back to Genesis one one. The God here, the word used, is Elohim. Elohim is the plural of the supreme God. It says right in the first few words of the Bible that there's more than one part of God that was there in creation. So what difference does it make if God is the, crea- the sole creator or if Jesus is the creator with him? Well, there is a question I have to ask myself from time to time. And that question is, how big is your God? I guess it comforts me to know that the God who created me, the, the God who created everything is also the Jesus who just by touching the hem of his garment, I can be healed. Knowing that the God who created me is the Jesus who died for me. He is the one who advocates for me. He is the Jesus who calls me closer to him. He is the Jesus that went to prepare a place for me. And he is the Jesus that's coming back for me. I'm an engineer. And over the years, I've run into people who think they are logically science-based and they think that that excludes any 
possibility of a creator or intelligent design. So for years I struggled with as short as possible of a proof for the existence of God. Um, Now, when I'm talking, I use the terms creator, intelligent design, and existence of God interchangeably. In different settings, you might have to use different words or you might have to explain them differently, but I think in this group of people, you can all understand that those mean the same thing to me. For my proof, I start out with two facts. These are not my facts. Uh, These are their facts. Actually, I don't even believe these facts, but they do, or they think they do. So here they are. There are 10 to the 80th subatomic particles in the whole universe. That's uh, a one followed by 80 zeros. According to them, the universe is 14 billion years old. And if you don't believe me on either of these two numbers, you can look them up. But for the purposes of this conversation, it really doesn't matter what realistic numbers you come up from, from there. Now for the interesting part, the part that I struggled with for years. How do you correlate the structure and density of the universe to anything that screams the existence of God? One morning I woke up with this thought on my mind. And now I've made it, this, as I read this to you, it's going to sound a little bit more complex than it needs to be, but I'll parse through it a little bit here. If every subatomic particle in the universe was a teraflop computer executing 10 to the 12th instructions per second for the 14 billion years, there has been 10 to the 110th chances to guess the human genome. That's a one with 110 zeros after it. A pretty big number. Certainly, a subatomic particle is not a teraflop computer, but I use that number to overstate the, chance, the, the, um, the chances of guessing the human genome. That way overstates the number. So here's the, here's the deal. The human genome has the complexity of 23 to the 3 billionth power. That's three billion zeros. We've got 110. We need three billion. That's like me asking you to guess a number between one and five. And it doesn't matter what number you come up with because the number I picked up is 1,872,529,126. They aren't in the same group. It can't happen. So basically, the number of chances to guess the human genome has 110 zeros. Um, If you want to argue that maybe 14 14 billion years should be 14 trillion years, that only actually adds three zeros. If you want to uh, think that the universe is maybe 100 times bigger that only adds two more zeros. The biggest number we can come up with is uh, got 115 zeros, and we need to guess nine billion zeros. And that is just the, the code structure of DNA. 
that doesn't have anything to do with the living cell that it has to be in or the complexity to replicate that DNA or to repair that DNA. God is so much bigger than we can comprehend. So you might say, John, if this is so obvious, why doesn't mainstream science acknowledge this? Well, in a way they did. They came to the conclusion that since there is no creator, the only other answer is that there must be an infinite number of universes. So somewhere in one of those infinite number of universes that you just happen to be in, life found the numbers to exist. If you believe that one, I've got a bridge for sale in another universe that I would like to sell you, and we can talk about that after Sabbath is over. The Bible answers this a different way. Romans 1.20 For the visible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So, we get a little way into, into Genesis and creation is corrupted by sin. sin. Sin in the Bible is often described as bondage or prison. John 8.32 And we shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And they answered him, We be Abraham's seed and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, we shall be made free. Of course, Jesus was telling them that they were prisoners of sin and that he could set them free. Of course, um, there are a lot of prison stories in the Bible and I want to take a look at some of those today. You remember in Genesis chapter 40 that Joseph was sold into captivity by his brothers. He worked as a slave and became very important to the household that he was in. He was accused of something that he didn't do and was thrown into prison. There he met the king's chief butler and baker. God gave Joseph the understanding of dreams and when the chief butler was reinstated and two years had gone by, the king had a dream And Joseph interpreted the dream for the king and became his right-hand man. Then Joseph, with the power of God, saved Egypt from the famine that came upon him. And he also saved his his, uh, father's household and his brothers who came for grain when there was no place else to get food in the world. And then, of course, out out of... uh, Um, Out of his father's household came the 12 tribes of Israel. So, here's another prison story. Acts 12, 7. And behold, the uh, angel of the Lord came upon him. A light shined in the prison, and he smote Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise up quickly. And the chains fell off from his hands. And the angel said unto him, Gird thyself and bind on thy sandals. And so he did. 
And he saith unto him, Cast thy garment about thee, and follow me. And he went out, and he followed him, and wist not that it was true, which was done by the angels, but thought he saw a vision. When they were past the first and second ward, they came to the iron gate that leadeth into the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and passed on through one street, and forthwith the angel departed from him. And when Peter was come to himself, he said, Now I know of a surety that the Lord hath sent an angel and hath delivered me out of the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the people of the Jews. Now, I thought about this a little bit. If I were locked in a prison for my beliefs and woke up and the door was wide open, I think I would assume God wanted me to leave. I think I might even be looking back at the angel saying, Are you coming? We're out of here. I know at least one of my family members has a little sign on the dashboard of their car reminding them to never fly faster than their guardian angel. I think that might be one time where I skipped that advice. I'd want to be out of there. Another prison story, Acts 16.23. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises to God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison awakened out of his sleep, and seeing that the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do not do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, What must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy household. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord, and to all that were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night, and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his family, straight away. Let's say you're driving down the road and a car pulls out in front of you. Should you swerve and avoid hitting the car? What if you hit the car, have a nice Bible study with the driver on the side of the road, and he and his household are saved. What if you don't hit the car? You swerve just in time and he was headed off to go jump off of a bridge. This seems to fit exactly with what Paul and Silas in prison. They could have walked out of the prison and the head guard would have done harm to himself. They stayed and the whole household was converted. 
except when we are fully surrendered to Jesus, we are all prisoners of sin. Psalms 142.7 Bring my soul out of prison that I may praise thy name. The righteous shall compass me about for thou shalt deal bountifully with me. Some of us are sick and we pray and some of us are healed and some of us stay in prison. Joseph was a captive in Egypt, a slave, a prisoner, yet God had a plan for his life where he was. John the Baptist lived a life of service to God. He had given up any form of a normal life. He was a prisoner, but he had to decrease that Christ might increase. Each one of us is in a different prison, just like all these men. We are on a path that is before us. We are listening for the leading of the Holy Spirit. For me, personally, for years and years, things were going really well. I actually hoped that if I could stay close to Jesus in the good times, perhaps I could eliminate the need for difficult trying times. We are all going to die. Or we are all going to grow old or we are going to die trying. It seems like the difficult times aren't so difficult if you are close to Jesus. Some prisons are smaller and more confining than others. Age, illness, stains from living in a sin-soaked world. But the real question is, how clearly do you hear God's voice? Will you know when to stay and when to go, when to work and when to be still and listen? When I was a young engineer, I worked with a group of guys that were all evangelical Christians. It seemed like that they were telling me, you either love God or he will burn you in hell for eternity. That didn't make sense to me. I wasn't interested in a God like that. I knew somehow that it wasn't true because to me God's love is evident everywhere you look. But it did remind me of the God that I knew when I was a child. Exactly one block from where I grew up was an all-boys high school named after Francis of Assisi. They called it St. Francis. Although my older five brothers and sisters had gone to the local public high school, my parents seriously considered sending me there. The summer before my freshman year, I even practiced with their basketball team. Ultimately, I decided that an all-boys school wasn't for me. And my parents uh, reconsidered the financial cost as there were still five more younger siblings at home. So I went to, like all the others, to the public high school. I played four years on the basketball team. We practiced for three hours a day, six days a week. In order to 
uh, earn a letter. That's the letterman's sweater or jacket. And they have the big letter of the um, school that you're on. In order to wear a letter, you have to have um, made it far enough in one of the sports that uh, they give you a little uh, um, emblem of that particular sport and you, and you sew it on your jacket for every year that, you're, you, that you uh, qualify and then you're allowed to wear a letterman's jacket. Um, in order to get, to get that, you had to play in a sanctioned game and score. There were guys... Um, that had jackets that were full of medals and patches like you couldn't believe. They had four footballs because they were on the varsity every year they were in high school. They had four basketballs because they were on the varsity every year they were in basketball. They had medals from tournaments and, and all kinds of stuff. But I wasn't on the first string. The first string is the five guys that start the game, play most of the game, I wasn't even on the second string where once in a while they have to replace one of those guys because they're tired or they sprain their knee or whatever the problem uh, was. I'm not even really sure I was on the third string. But what I do know was that my coach would never put any of the uh, lesser players in. Um, no matter how far ahead we were in the game or how far behind, he thought his top players needed the, needed the practice. A lot of coaches will put in, when they can't win the game or they can't lose the game, they'll put in their lesser players to get some experience, but not our coach. So after four years of practicing, three hours a day, six days a week, I had never played in a sanctioned game. It came down to the last two minutes and 20 seconds of the final game of my senior career. We were a boatload of points ahead. The coach finally called on me. Before I knew it, I was on the, on the basketball court. I somehow ended up with the ball and dribbled the whole length of the court. I never saw another player behind me. I got to the end, took the shot, the buzzer went off, the ball went in, and the crowd went wild. <laughs> now, I want you to think about this for a minute. Now, use your imaginations with me. I want to imagine that it's 2018, this year right now. You've been given the tickets to the NBA Finals. It's a blowout. The whole home team is up by over 100 points. It's the last two minutes and 20 seconds of the game. There's a big teleprompter that hangs down over there so they can show you video and scores and all kinds of stuff. But when you look up, there's a picture of you. You've been invited to join the team in the last two minutes and 20 seconds of the game. They're the national champions. They just won the game. Everything's already done. You join your new teammates down on the court. They hand you the ball. They stand head and shoulders above every else, everybody else and they protect your way all the way to the basket. One of them picks you up. They're so big, they pick you up. You're over the basket. 
you just drop the ball into the basket. The buzzer goes off and the crowd goes wild because you join the team, you share in the victory that was won before you even started. You are now part of the team. You get the really big trophy. You get the Nike contract. You get it all. You see, that's how it is with Jesus. He has already won the victory. We've been asked to join the team in the last two minutes and 20 seconds. The way home is lined with angels. There may be a few sprained ankles or fiery darts, but what is that compared to winning the crown? You see, the only way to miss out on the victory is when your face, when your face appears on that teleprompter is to say, no thanks, Lord, not me. Choose someone else. I was reading recently about St. Francis of Assisi. He was reportedly a stigmatic, actually the first stigmatic in Christian history. Stigmata is when a person manifests the, the wounds that Christ received on the cross. Nail prints in the hands and feet, a spear in the side, and deep punctures where a crown of thorns would be. If I understand it correctly, it was a blessing to share in the suffering of Christ. This is a very different view of Christ, a very different view of Jesus, a very different view of God than I have now. To be saved, you have to do penance. When you die, you go to purgatory to do some time for your sins. If you're really close to God, you can get stigmata and share in the suffering of Christ on the cross. After studying the Bible as an Adventist for the last 30 years or so, my view of God has changed. God is love. He wants me to have an abundant life. He died for my sins so that I could live without them. If you are really close to God, you might not even experience the first death, like Enoch in Hebrews 11.5. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Jesus is the creator. He has dominion over time, every particle in the universe. He planned humankind all the way down to the DNA and the cell factories that can re, uh, replicate it and repair it. He also has a specific plan for you, just as he did for Joseph, John the Baptist, Peter, and Paul. Jesus can recreate us. He can take away our stony heart and give us a heart of flesh. 
Jesus will let us out of the prison when it is the right time for his plan, if we are willing. Jesus is like you and me, a human being. He was tempted as we are. He was born as a baby. He lived with, with a family and worked in a family business. Like Joseph in prison in Egypt, will you be sharing with the other prisoners? Like John the Baptist, Dwayne Froning, Clyde Moore, Jack Sloan, Stan Kirk, will your time come while you are fighting the good fight? Like Peter, when the Holy Spirit leads with the angels of heaven, will you follow? Like Paul and Silas, when you are asked to stay, will you hear and follow the instructions so those around you can be saved? Like the last two minutes and 20 seconds of the game, will you join the winning team and ask others to join with you? For around 6,000 years, this world has been tainted by sin. When it is finished, there will be no more pain, no more sin, no more suffering, no more death. Someday soon, we will look back on it and it will be like the blink of an eye. Have you set your heart to be on the winning team? 2 Timothy 4.7 I have fought a good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not me only, but unto all them that also love his appearing. And Romans 8.8 8, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. It turns out that God's whole point in creating this world uh, wasn't this world at all. It's not the mountains and the sea and the sky and the birds and the bees and the fish. This world will be destroyed and built anew. God's whole point of creation was creating you and making uh, and giving you the opportunity to choose if you want to be part of his new creation. Well, that's really all I had to say today. I decided to close with a final thought that kind of summed up everything. Um, and I remembered this. And coincidentally, Stan Mulder pulled this out of a hat this morning in Sabbath school. And the quote is, Preach always, and when absolutely necessary, use words. Interestingly enough, when I researched it, that quote is attributed to Francis of Assisi. God bless you today.
I hope you have a wonderful Sabbath day. Thank you.